Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Hello and welcome to the episode today. I have a really insightful and thought-provoking conversation today with Sarah. So Sarah has had a number of roles over her lifetime, including working for non-for-profits, working for big corporations. She is now a mum and she started it all as a teacher in the classroom. And I think it is really important to have conversations with people that leave education because the old adage well, if you can't do teach or I don't know what I'm going to do with this degree, so I'll just I'll just teach, that'll be fine, is something that we need to really undo in society because teaching is not just something you do as a backup because you really need to have the passion behind it for an enduring career. And I've seen a number of people leave the profession while I've been in it. I've seen pre-service teachers that I felt weren't potentially in it for the right reasons either. And I have always wondered what happens once they go or if they ever actually finish their degrees after those first few teaching rounds and what Sarah has to offer is really important because she talks about what she learns in teaching and how that has allowed her to create better opportunities that are more aligned with who she is and what she wants out of life and out of a career and I think the message that nothing is a mistake that every opportunity creates learning and then allows for greater opportunities to become accessible to us. I think that that's really important. And she is just an oracle of insight, perspective, intelligence and knowledge. And I know you'll get a lot out of this conversation because I did. I learned a lot and I'm really proud of being able to bring this to you. So here is Sarah. Hi, Sarah. How are you going? Hey, Laura. I'm well. How are you? I'd like to start by talking about your high school experience, if you can give me some background. So my primary school years were really quaint and beautiful. I went to a gorgeous, sleepy little primary school where there were only six girls and seven boys in my year level every year. My parents really wanted to give me the best opportunity that they could, so they worked day and night to send me to a girls' private school. And all of a sudden, I had 150 girls in my year level, and they were from all walks of life. And it took me a long time to find my feet in a way. Mm. I went from being the best in the class, Mm -hmm. because I didn't have a lot of competition, (laughs) to really feeling like I didn't quite know what my strengths were. And so it was a time of exploration for me. I found I had lots of interests and the school I went to had lots of opportunities. So I really explored a lot of musical pursuits and artistic pursuits, but I was probably just a middle of the road student. Mm -hmm. I worked really hard because you had to. Mm -hmm. There's maybe a misconception that when you go to a private school, everything's put on a platter for you and there's no work involved. And that certainly wasn't the case for me. I found Mm. most nights after school and most weekends, I was doing homework. And that was probably partly because my parents were watching me and I knew that I wanted to provide them with a return on investment that they'd be proud of. But I also felt that I needed to do that to keep up. Yeah. So it was a cultural thing that everyone worked hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so what kind of subjects did you end up really investing in towards the end of your schooling? I probably gave up a little early on science and maths. Mm. I did general maths in year 12. And my dad is a civil engineer, so I think it was a little bit disappointing that he saw that (laughs) I kind of moved out of the field that he enjoyed so much. And I really pursued the the humanities. So history, literature, English, and visual art. And what would your teachers have said about you as a student, do you think? I reckon every one of my reports would have said Sarah needs to come out of her shell. We don't Mm. hear enough from Sarah. And that was something that plagued me for a long time, actually probably until uni and and beyond really. I felt I was, I didn't really have a lot to say 
perhaps. Mm. I felt the same way. Yeah, I was still learning about Mm. who I was, what I stood for, what my values were. So I found I was very much an observer. Mm -hmm. I completely resonate with this. In fact, I don't believe I actually put my hand up to answer a question until year 10. I'm not kidding you. I just never did. I never had anything to say or I felt like what I had to say wasn't good enough. And I was the same at university too, especially in a literature degree. There are a lot of big voices in there. It was very intimidating for me. Yeah, I found that too. And I was a chronic blusher. So I always knew that I would go bright red and I was usually teased for it. So I would avoid, I was probably not, not so much teased but just you know it it would be called out (laughs) and so that made me avoid it even more and I found that was the case like when I was doing university that was still the case but I felt like I'd found I'd hit my stride a little bit and I had a lot to say so I didn't I didn't mind so much and when I went on to my work environment I just like plowed through it I was like I'm gonna go red now but this is what I want to say and after a while, I just stopped going red. I love that. So you actually called it out before anybody else did. I think yep. that's the best way of dealing with any insecurity. Yep. Look, I know this is happening, yep. whatever. <laughs> Don't you think? Because then you take the power yes. back completely. I love that. <laughs> that's such a good strategy. Mm. So did you feel pressure to have your future set and have a plan after you finished high school? I think everyone does to an extent. Mm. I felt pressure around the career because mum and dad had invested so much in me and I think Mm -hmm. we're so fortunate in this culture in Australia to have so many opportunities and so little in our way but that then creates a lot of decisions and when you're young you have so few data points to draw from so few facts coming at you from the real world that it can be difficult to make these big decisions based on those and so if I think of the adults that were in my world there weren't that many of them and I wouldn't have really known what many of their roles were unless it was sort of universal roles like a teacher or like a nurse or even an engineer. But there are so many variations of roles that even today I wouldn't necessarily understand what those would entail unless I looked into them. So, yes, I did feel that pressure. And so what was your plan leaving high school? Well, I wanted to get into writing somehow. I liked the idea of being a journalist because I felt it would provide some diversity. I really did enjoy spending time with people and learning about the world. I was quite fascinated by the news, so I thought journalism could be cool. But I also really enjoyed just writing fiction and poetry and that sort of thing. So I think something that encompassed writing was important. And I ended up getting a much higher TER than I'd expected, enough to get into law. And I remember toying with the idea of doing that. But when I was looking at the course details, it just sounded really not like me. So I ended up going Mm. with a professional writing degree at Deakin. And that allowed me to do all sorts of cool humanities subjects, but also major in journalism and editing and visual art as well. And so what did you end up doing by the end of your university degree? What did you leave with? So I I had my professional writing degree. And it was in my third year of that that I started to get a bit fidgety because I'd been writing the whole time, sending a lot of my work out to newspapers and into competitions. And I got a little bit published, but I started thinking, oh, I understand now a lot more about the level of competition in this field. And Mm -hmm. I felt like I needed to hedge my bets in a way. And mum and dad Mm -hmm. approached me and said, have you ever considered teaching? And I hadn't, but Mm -hmm. I knew a few people who were either on the course to become a teacher or had recently become teachers and they seemed to really enjoy it. So it sounded like something that would be great to have up my sleeve. So then I did a two-year teaching degree, which was primary for the first year and then secondary for the second Is there a reason you chose to do that degree rather than just a straight diploma of education? Yeah, I just wanted, again, it sounds like I'm a hedge my bets kind of gal, but yeah, I wanted to make sure (laughs) that I'd I'd covered as many bases as possible. So I felt like a degree would stand up potentially a little bit stronger than a diploma and that having primary, I didn't actually think that I'd teach primary, but I thought it would just give me, again, just another option down the road. What were teaching rounds like for you? Teaching rounds, well, I guess to give you some context, 
the professional writing degree was incredible. I had, uh, I met some of my favorite people during those years. I really yeah. found my own during that time. And it was just, yeah, a, a magical time for me because we were writing all the time and we really got to know each other because we were always critiquing each other's work. So we became a really close bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And likewise, with, the, with mm. the art side of things, I had a really great bunch of people who I was studying with there. And then I moved into the teaching realm and I didn't like it at all. The coursework was interesting mm. enough to me, particularly the psychology side of things. But the actual teaching rounds, I lucked out during my first one, which was in a primary school after grade five, because the supporting teacher was just incredible. But each and every other round, I felt that I was just counting down the days until it was over. Okay. And I'd come back to school and everyone would be brimming with excitement and just not want to be there because they'd loved their teaching rounds so much. They just wanted to actually be out in the world um, pursuing that career. And I would be sitting there thinking, oh, this this just doesn't ring true for me. But then I would always just yeah. wait until the next one comes. You'll have a different set of kids, a different set of content to deliver. I even spent some time in regional Victoria teaching at schools there and again I loved the actual I stayed mm. with the teacher there and it was so much fun and you know we'd play netball together and all this with all the other teachers but the actual teaching rounds again they just didn't spark joy. So what was it about it did you feel it was just you weren't connecting with the material you felt like it wasn't where you should be it was the kids like could you put your finger on what it was that wasn't sparking that joy for you? I think it was probably the combination of me feeling quite self-conscious with not really feeling a sense mm. of ownership of what was going on in the classroom. So perhaps it was the the teachers who were my supervisors at the time, but they already had their content nailed down. So I found I didn't have a lot of leeway yeah. with the content. And I felt that you were kind of just in and out. So you didn't necessarily have enough opportunity to really connect with the kids and then I would say to myself that when I had my own class that's when I would feel like a proper teacher and I could really yeah craft the room and the experience and the content in my own way so even though I didn't feel right that whole time you still thought to yourself when I have my own class it will be okay yes and that was the kind of rhetoric in your head absolutely and I'd come so far so And I was curious as well because there's such a difference Mm. between, as you know, the teaching round and having your own class. So I was was curious about what would unfold. So you started your career in teaching. What was your time like in the classroom? It was great, actually. I lucked out. So I did, first of all, I had a six-month period where I was doing relief teaching and that was a little bit Mm -hmm. of baptism by fire in a way because... Uh every morning at between six and seven I'd receive a call from this agency and they'd tell me the name of a school that I'd never heard of and I'd look it up in the Melways because it was well before Google Maps and I'd make a quick assessment and let them know whether I'd be able to get there by nine o'clock and I'd go out there with my little kit of of tools (laughs) uh, and try and look after some kids for a day. And that was actually a really amazing experience because I went all across Melbourne. I taught at Islamic colleges, so I wore a hijab. I taught at Catholic colleges, private schools, government schools, everything in between, and uh, primary and secondary. So I was able to gauge what I really wanted to do as well in terms of what type of classroom I wanted to be working in. And I realised I really wanted to work in secondary and at a government school. And that's what I ended up landing as a literature, English and visual art teacher. And so what was your time like when you had that role? It was really lovely. I landed such a beautiful team. I've never had such a supportive staff before in my life. So if I was ever going to make it anywhere, it would have been there. And I started with a couple of people who became two of my closest friends as well and are still teaching today. Mm -hmm. So we would all study together and develop curriculum together. And yeah, it was, we worked really hard. And the kids were beautiful. They were smart and sassy and gave me a run for my money and taught me so much. 
So when did you feel as though this might not be your forever career? Well, you know, that little voice had been there for a while where I wasn't quite sure. And I kept seeing, it was probably I was observing everyone around me and they just, they longed to come back after school holidays, (laughs) which I never really did. Yeah, They had a certain longevity to their view and I didn't. I was always just thinking the next 10 weeks ahead and they could see themselves, I guess, growing older into the role. So there was this moment when I was teaching Hamlet in year 11 and there's this amazing quote which is, and this above all to thine own self be true. And it was like a a lightning bolt had struck me and I just realised that I wasn't being true to myself, that even though I didn't know what the alternative was, I could hang around here for the next 30 years quite comfortably because it was so comfortable but I would never know what lay on the other side of those walls. I'd been in a classroom my whole life up until that point. Yeah. So I actually went home that night and told my parents and they were mortified that I was thinking of leaving and I quit the next day and yeah. the principal. What time of the year was this? It was mid-year, which I know is a faux pas. It's terrible. Oh, no, I'm just interested. Yeah. The principal asked me whether they could just give me a little bit of time. Maybe I just needed to rest. Maybe I just needed to think a little more. And I said no. And that, you know, I thanked them for that. And they said that the door would always be open for me to come back. That's lovely. And then I had to break it to the kids and they couldn't believe it because it felt like it came out of nowhere for them. So, yeah, it wasn't ideal. And what year of teaching was this for you? My third. Yeah. I do tend to see that it's usually by the seventh year that people are in or they're out. Yes. I find it's those years that are quite formative, I think, for teachers. Yes. Yes. So uh, I had this beautiful send-off. The kids showered me with all of the incredible things that you get as a teacher from them. Yeah. Homemade CDs and, Mm. you know, cards and all sorts of lovely things. Mm. And then I was just out on my own looking for a job and I wasn't quite sure. I hadn't thought things through too far ahead other than I'd need to find some sort of bridging role where I could take those transferable skills that I had as a teacher into the world outside of the classroom. And I started slinging resumes left, right and centre. I spent all day and all night on Seek looking for roles and I just didn't hear from anybody and it was probably a couple of months of that and then I realised I needed to get some form of employment pretty quickly. So I called a temping agency Mm -hmm. and I went and had an interview with the manager there she checked my words per minute. So I did a typing yeah, test. I did one of those two back in the day. Yeah. And by the time I drove home, I had a gig. And that's actually a really good point I'd like to make, which is temp agencies are incredible for just getting your foot in mm. the door, being able to find a way to earn some money in an honest mm. way is is what mattered to me but it did feel like it was a fall from grace yeah okay and interestingly actually just about the temping role so I went to work for the CFA which is the country fire authority and the lady who had chosen my name was an ex-teacher herself okay and I guess that just in some ways goes to show that you know you just never know Mm who is out there and what influence what you've done in the past can have on the opportunities that come your way. So, yeah, I rolled up to this job. It was working with some executive, with the executive team rather at CFA and I ended up spending half a day shredding board papers. Mm. So it was me in a room with a shredder and I remember sitting there being equally proud but also a little bit horrified because I knew that, you know, not so long ago I had been managing classrooms and here I was. Yeah. And how long did you identify with the idea of being a teacher and how long did it take you to separate yourself from no longer keeping that as part of your identity? I'd say I spent a good five years after leaving the teaching profession, commencing my statement about my career and what I do with I started life as a teacher or Mm -hmm. I was once a teacher. I was so proud of it. And I'd wanted it to stick so much and I admire teachers enormously. So it meant a lot to me that I'd had a couple of years to spend in such a noble role. And I didn't know that I'd ever be able to match it, to be honest. Yeah, okay. 
So what is your job now and how did you acquire this position? So it was 17 years ago or so that that I started teaching. So it's been quite a journey. I've had lots of different roles since then. So when I was at the CFA, I was working with the executive team there. So the board members, the chairman and the CEO, and I got to spend time with some of the legal team as well. So I got to learn about all sorts of different things, including how to investigate backburning incidents, how to write corporate communications, how to write speeches, because we had lots of our executive team members going and opening up fire stations and all sorts of events like that. So I started using my comms background through that role. And we also had Black Saturday, which you might remember was one of the most horrific days in our history. And I spent a lot of time with the volunteers during that period, taking calls from people who had been impacted directly by the bushfires. And so I got to learn a lot about the volunteering sector and how to write comms in a way that was easily consumable. And I noticed a couple of roles come up at the Red Cross, the Australian Red Cross, and threw my hat in the ring and ended up going to work there next for five years in a project role where I was working on developing some national strategies and policies for the volunteering sector of Red Cross, which is about 60,000 people. And part of that also was leaning into my L&D or learning development background, which I was able to transfer over from teaching as well. So developing training materials for them. And then from there, my role was made redundant at the Red Cross and I felt like it was time to test the waters of a corporate organization. So there was an opening at a big national energy provider and I threw my hat in the ring there and I've been there ever since. It's just ticked over 10 years. And from there, it was just working in learning and development projects, lots of marketing and comms segues. And then I've kind of found my feet or found my maybe my my little patch for the moment, which is project management and change management. And those are two disciplines that I've worked over the past 10 years on. And yeah. So can you tell me about what the corporate world is really like? It's often depicted as highly competitive and money focused. I'd love to hear your experience of it all. Yes. So the corporate world, it's incredibly competitive, but I think that comes from the leanness of the corporates these days and the fact that your role can be made redundant at any moment. So it's really important for you to be seen. It's really important for the company to be innovating and to be making money. So I think that perception is true, but I think also it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a dog-eat-dog world either. And one of the things that really drives me to stay in a corporate organisation is that pace and the dynamic environment and the fact that, yeah, there is this energy that's required in order to always be fighting to get the best ideas and to be working really hard to deliver things over and above expectation. Uh, One of the things that I really noticed walking into the corporate world was just how much money was available to us. So... Mm. Having come from not-for-profit where I would have to fight tooth and nail for $5,000 to be spread across 60,000 volunteers, I jumped into the corporate world and all of a sudden there were catered meetings and people were Mm. being taken out for lunch and if you wanted to go and have a face-to-face conversation with one of your colleagues in Brisbane, they'd pay for you to fly there. So Mm. it was such a shock to my system to see that. Of course, that was prior to the global financial crisis. Things are really different now in many respects and even more so going through COVID at the moment, having just been off work for the past 12 months on parental leave, stepping back in now, I can already see, again, an extra leanness that has been applied. But it's, it is competitive and there is certainly a focus on money. Did you feel as though you were well supported when you first moved into that role? I don't think anything will match the support I received as a teacher. I just think yeah. I lucked out, to be frank. Mm-hmm. There is a level of support. I guess there's a cost to everything and there's a benefit. So the cost is I work and have always worked really hard. Most days I work 10-hour days and I get paid for seven point something of that. Uh, There's no overtime. 
There's an expectation that you're available when people need you on the weekends. There's an expectation that you'll drop everything and travel if that's required by the business, regardless Mm -hmm. of what your family commitments are. Uh, But there's also opportunity to financially gain as well. So we have KPIs, so key performance indicators. If we hit Mm -hmm. those targets, we can be handsomely rewarded for that. Mm. It's hard to hide if you're underperforming because Mm -hmm. it's really obvious, I think, because of the level that people are performing at. Yeah. So there's there's something in that that really drives me and I don't know if that's crazy but I just like being able to continue to grow and perhaps that's the one part of the teacher side of me that I've always retained and that's that thirst for learning and growth and it's certainly yeah. available there. And there's also some great things that corporates are doing at the moment. So I feel like in the past maybe five years or so, they've really stepped up and started to acknowledge that in the end, it's the people that make the difference, Mm. both customers and employees, and that if they're not looking after their people, they're really not going to survive. So I think one of the things we were talking about earlier is that health and well-being side of things has really been ramped up. Mm. I have just gone back into work recently and I'm now working from home, which is really new for me. Mm. But one of the things that I did when I first started back was I had a virtual ergonomics assessment where a physiotherapist was looking at how my desk was set up and he didn't think it was up to scratch. And he put a report through to HR saying that I needed all of this new equipment. And within 24 hours, I received, no joke, my own desk chair from the office. Some had they had sorted out and sent it to me by a courier, as well as a monitor and a separate keyboard and mouse. And it was just amazing. So there's now, I think, quite rightly so, the investment being made back into people. We have employee assistance programs that we can call at any time for counselling. There's all sorts of also really great things we can do for the community. We have volunteering programs, unlimited volunteer days if we'd like to get involved in and and there's also obviously learning and development opportunities too that we can continue to grow ourselves Mm. so there is absolutely sacrifice in the hours spent at the office virtually or non but it's not something that I haven't signed up to yeah was that pretty clear when you took the role what the expectation was no I don't think so I feel like it's probably a bit of a sink or swim situation with people and probably the longer I've spent there the more challenging it it has become purely because we just don't have the resources anymore yeah okay be it the budget or just the amount of people that are required to fulfill the needs of the organization so everyone is stretched for example I had almost 60 annual leave days up my sleeve. So we get four weeks of annual leave a year and I had about 60 days, which equates to, I don't know, four or five months. So almost four or five years worth of annual leave that I hadn't used because I'd been going from one project to the next without any breaks besides public holidays each year. So it's quite relentless in that respect. So what is it you've learned from teaching in your time in the nonprofit world that has given you an edge now in the corporate world? I think teaching is ultimately about relationships. So one of the strengths that I have that I didn't realise is a strength because I felt like everyone has it is that ability to connect with people and to almost yeah. intuitively understand what it is that they need. And I think that is transferable across all of the roles that I've had Um, in particular in not-for-profit because sometimes there can be so much bureaucracy that you need to wade through. So being able to understand how to work with various stakeholders and come to agreement with them, being able to share an idea in seven different ways, which is what you need to do as a teacher. You need to be able to not only communicate in different ways but share concepts in a way that's going to be meaningful to them. So doing those sorts of things has been important but I feel like it's probably not just for not for profit that it was useful I feel like it's across all yeah. of the different roles that I've had since then. How did this role fit into your timeline or how you projected your life to be going? Did you anticipate to be so ambitious and career-driven in your early 30s? 
Well, it may not be surprising to you that I haven't really had a timeline (laughs) for my career because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to do lots of different things and that until I tried them, because I'm I'm very much a kinesthetic Mm. learner, you know, I need to, I can't just romanticize about what something might be. I'm too much of a realist in that respect. So I think I needed to give myself leeway to jump around and experience things and then see what fits. So I had no idea what a project manager is or what a change manager is. 17 years ago and I do now obviously but a lot of people wouldn't today and when I talk to them about what I do there's always a fascination around what Mm. it entails which is great but I've never really wanted to stay long in one spot yeah I think that's been one of my problems I've got a great imagination but maybe there were too many choices in my mind and I couldn't land on something I've always struggled with making choices so I didn't necessarily have a clear-cut view of where I would be which in itself created a level of anxiety I had to just kind of put one foot in front of the other and make as many decisions as I could to move me forward and look for the look for the interesting work. So there wasn't really a formula, though I knew that I wanted to be someone yeah. and, and do something awesome. Uh, I didn't necessarily have someone who I was looking at and saying, yes, that's it. That's the one. No. And that was that's been part of my journey the whole time, part of what I've really wrestled yeah. with. So I remember talking to one of my colleagues maybe seven years ago or so, and I was wrestling with an idea of doing a secondment, so moving into the brand and marketing team. And I just didn't know whether it was the right thing to do. And he just said, you just need to back a horse. Like you just need to choose something because the longer you sit and wait, the longer you won't be doing something, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I just did it. And it was cool. It was a year of going on photo shoots and working with designers and coming up with amazing concepts and it was brilliant but it kind of ran its course after a year and it was only a secondment anyway. So it was this great taster that I don't regret and then I was able to move into something else. But one of the things that I tell people now because I actually have a couple of people that I mentor at the moment and I was saying in my experience I never actually had a 100% yes for things. Mm. Sometimes I had to settle for a 60% yes. Okay. And as soon as I realised that, it was enough for me. Mm. Because I'd been waiting for the perfect answer, that's what had been keeping me inert at times. And it doesn't mean that you're not ambitious if you don't know what you want to do. Actually, the contrary, you know, you can tie yourself in knots and inside out trying to find the answer when all you really need to do is take one step forward or one step sideways or as I did when I moved out of teaching, a number of steps backwards. (laughs) But it was my freedom. Yeah. And it turned out just fine. But I had to be patient and I had to just trust my gut because it's only my life, you know. Laura, you can give me advice for what I should be doing, but it's my life. So there has to be, in the end, a moment where you stand by your dish, as I say, which is where, like on MasterChef, yes, like you know that. how you front up and even if you've made a pile of rubbish, <laughs> you just have to hand it up to the judge, yes. judges and say, this is what it is. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to stand by your dish and say, this is what I'm doing. But the beauty of it is we always have choice. We don't have to just lay down and say, oh, my goodness, that wasn't right. Now now it's all over. Yeah. That's not the case at all. There was always time to, to pivot and to find a better way. I love this answer so much and I think that we need to hear this so much more in society because people feel intimidated or as though they've failed in some way if they don't see their life mapped out clearly or if they're not excited about something because they should be or make a certain amount of money And I don't think progress is necessarily linear. And I think that sometimes the going sideways and the backwards actually gives us skills that we need to move 10 steps forward that we could never have moved had we not gone backwards. And I love that so much. And I think people need to hear that. And especially for me as a teacher, seeing these 17-year-olds choosing their subjects or their university courses with so much pressure on them, knowing that it will be okay 
And even if they don't have a clear understanding, they might have a job that they don't even know exists. Yeah, they they, they actually will. Like, there's no doubt about it because there are things around mm. now that, goodness, I, I wouldn't have any idea what their role entails, but it's actually a, a necessity that we need it today. So absolutely, yeah. by the time they go through uni or if they go to uni or not, by the time they hit the workforce, things will have evolved so much further from that very point in time. And that's something to remember as well, to not label yourself too early because we're forever evolving and learning. And if we kind of put ourselves in a box too early, then we'll inadvertently miss out later on. And it's okay to, again, a little bit like making the decisions where you might only be 60% sure. You might only be 30% sure that you can do a job, but you may as well put your hat in the ring. If you've got enough passion behind it and all of the people leaders that I talk to as I'm doing a project at the moment actually about development and career, all of the people leaders I talk to say it's all about attitude. So they would hire someone who has the right attitude and a level of passion and enthusiasm above technical skill set any day of the week. And as soon as you figure that out in the real Mm. world, gives you so much freedom and if you thought you were really shit at science in year 11 it doesn't mean that you can't do something scientific later on I was terrible and I still am so terrible at tech my partner had to help me with getting my headphones set for this it's embarrassing (laughs) but I've delivered a couple of tech programs through the work that I've done yeah and it surprises me like no more than anyone else but it's those sorts of things. So I would I would strongly recommend that people don't put themselves in boxes and think about what their year nine teacher told them as gospel because yeah. you can always, again, flex yeah. and pivot later on. Sometimes yeah. it's just the setting that isn't right. So would you like to give us some insight into your actual <laughs> role? I think we've been vaguely skirting around it. Can you tell me exactly what you do? Yep. So I have two main disciplines. One is as a project manager. And the other is as a change manager. And I've kind of worked up to those over the past 10 years at this corporate I've been working in. And basically, I like, again, I think I like hedging my bets and I really love diversity. So a project manager is where you look after a a full team of people to deliver some sort of solution. An example might be a new policy It might be a revamped intranet. It could be a new process. It could be a new payroll system, which is what I'm working on at the moment. So that's the project management side of things. You have to manage a budget. You have to manage the risks and the issues. You have to come up with the communication schedule. You have lots of different people in your team to support you with that, but you're basically heading up all of those things and you're on the hook for whether the project is delivered or not on time and on budget. So the change manager role has a lot more psychology beneath it and it's far more hands-on and it actually works within the project. And it entails looking at the current state versus the future state. And the things that a change manager will do is a change impact assessment where you will talk to all the stakeholders involved in the change and look at what are the things that are going to be different. So is there new technology? Are there new role titles? Will people need to behave a little bit differently? Will they need to think differently? What will people leaders need to do differently? So assessing all of those different levels and coming up with some change interventions or a change plan so that the change doesn't hit people between the eyes in a negative way and Mm. they're able to really move through to the new world in a comfortable way. So the sorts of things that change managers do is they'll write communications plans and content for comms. They'll also train people or come up with training schedules. They will do UAT testing for new systems. And it's basically lots of conversations, keeping people informed of what's happening ensuring that we're really clear on what their needs are and addressing those needs as quickly as we can so that business can continue to thrive in the midst of all the change that will happen in any week. 
That's awesome. And it's amazing to me that there is such a role because, you know, especially in schools, we're often given new policy from the department and it is a really challenging thing to keep staff on side when there's such great change because I think the most important thing is to understand the why and often the why comes after that this is what you have to do. And so it's amazing to me that those things are actually being addressed in the corporate setting. And I think, look, admin, leading teachers, they do the best that they can, but it certainly is a challenge to do that. And I love the fact that there's actually a role to make that a bit smoother. Yeah, it's so much fun. And, you know, often as a change manager, you can be seen as quite a nuisance because you're bringing in something else that's new and people don't have the bandwidth for it. And you're asking them to do something in addition to their day job. And they've already had to change so much in the past Mm -hmm. because there's this thing called change fatigue that businesses are facing at the moment where there's just this whirlwind of stuff that's always new and it's hard to keep track of it. So you're very often the enemy, but I like to see that as a bit of a challenge to try and win people over. And I mean, ultimately, if you can have smiling customers at the end of the day or smiling stakeholders at the end of the day because you've engaged them early and you've really listened to their needs and you've you've worked really hard to try and to manage their expectations but also deliver to meet those needs then it can be so satisfying and ultimately also it will be what prevents or allows the success of a project. So what are some of the strategies that you would employ to minimize the backlash I suppose of any change? Engaging early and often, being really clear about the why, as you mentioned earlier, because people have to connect with that intimately in order to buy into it. And even if they don't buy into it, understanding logically why the need is there is usually undeniable. So if you've got a compelling enough case for change, it can't just be change for change's sake. It needs to have enough guts behind it be it part of a strategic pillar, you know, part of a cost-saving exercise or maybe in schools part of a curriculum shift, whatever it is, something it needs to be compelling. But I think having a two-way conversation is key as well. So understanding that it's not just being bestowed upon them but is the Mm. dance of, I guess, working with them to implement. Yeah. And therefore, allowing them to have a voice so that you can then address the concerns. I mean, a lot of the conversations I have as a change manager are people just airing their frustrations. And then after that, they feel much better. And we can say, okay, so now that you've had that, now that we've had that discussion, how can we make it better? Yeah. How can we improve this for you? What do you need? And if, as long as you've got enough lead time, you can usually help in so many ways and at the end of the day you have these satisfied people who are not only happy about that but they've also through that process bought into the change and become advocates for it themselves and one of the things that you also need in change management 101 is having a leader-led change strategy so it needs to be coming from the top down you need to have some Mm. you know really strong people advocating for it and supporting it, not so often we see people trying to erode it from above and then you've got no hope. Yeah. So I really love having both disciplines because I find that when I'm doing the change management, I'm in the detail and I'm really getting to know program and the people and then I get a little bit fatigued of that and I like going up a level and being a project manager so I can have that bird's eye view of everything and all of the different moving parts of which change management is one. So I really enjoy having both of those disciplines. And the way that it works at my organisation is there's almost like a, a figurative bench of people who have different project expertise. So you might have business analysts, comms leads, UAT testers, project managers and change managers. And at any one time, there'll be people farmed off to different projects across the business, depending on what's going on in each of the areas. So it's so diverse and dynamic. I might have four different projects on at once, or I might have one really meaty one. 
that goes for 12 Mm. months and say four little ones of three to six months and there's always this overlap of different projects so I find I'm never bored I'm always able to apply learnings from one to the other as well and I'm always working with different groups of people yeah do you think the idea of creating something out of nothing was something you enjoyed in teaching too yeah I do Mm. I think there's there's always been a fascination that I've had with that and you know you always hear these stories about people coming up with ideas on the back of an envelope and the amount of times when that has actually happened to me where I've been traveling for work and someone will slip me something and say I need you to do this it's it's a new thing that I want done and it'll be like four words on the back of a piece of paper and it's like how but then they just disappear it's like you know they disappear and they're like off you go and all of a sudden yeah I need to create a scope of work, a concept, pull together a team, think about what the timeframes will be, what sort of budget we could use, all the different scenarios that we could have to try and create this end solution. That creativity is really important for me. And as I said earlier, I feel like I've found my kind of patch for now because it's given me the satisfaction and drive that I've been craving. Yeah. So what have you accomplished in your role that you're really proud of that you'd like to share? So one of the projects I'm really proud of was a renewed parental leave policy that was released probably around 18 months ago. And there was quite a lot of promotional headlines around this because it was first in class. And it actually abolished um, gender roles. So it was the first gender neutral policy that Australia has seen. And it was very inclusive. So it offers 20 weeks of paid leave to a male or a female, whoever is the primary carer. But it's also applicable to surrogate parents and foster parents and adoptive parents as well. And one of the things that was really important about it too is there weren't any wait periods. So if you joined the organisation and you were already eight months pregnant or your partner was, you would be able to access this leave. It wasn't like in the past where you would usually have to wait for 12 months to be with the business for that long before you could access this kind of leave. Mm. So that was absolutely phenomenal. And the change that it has made to, I think, levelling up the sense of equality across the business was quite mind-blowing. We started to see lots of dads going on parental leave and taking those five months as the primary carer and then bringing back insights from that, which was really beautiful. Yeah. And it just meant that so many more people had access to those benefits that they wouldn't have had in the past. Mm. Another series of projects that I worked on were around customer centricity and it was about trying to bring our senior leaders closer to the customer experience because so often there is this, I guess, distance between the two levels. So Mm. we invented this concept called Teach a Leader and it was twofold in its design. It was about getting our leadership team members in front of a customer, but also in front of a customer serving employee. So someone who is on the front line, on the phones or out in LPG trucks. And so we'd have all of these LT members going out in trucks or spending time in the contact centre with these employees, partnering with them and calling back customers who had rated us really poorly and asking them what their experience was like. And it really hit home. And they would even give them their personal number for future grievances and they would follow up with those individuals directly. And it, it was amazing how you started to see the conversations change at senior management level because yeah. there was that personal experience that they had. And not only was it great for the customer, but it was great for those frontline employees who, again, were so far removed from senior leaders, being able to sit with them for an hour and show them how hard it is in that role. And again, we often found connections being made between the leaders and those employees too, which was just such a bonus as well. 
So that was really cool. I also helped instigate a a referral program and a grievance program so that if I was at a barbecue and you came up to me, Laura, and said, oh, where do you work? And I told you and you said, oh, I'm having so much trouble with them. They're not calling me back or something like that. I could actually whip out my mobile phone and open up an app and I could put all of your details into it. And within 24 hours, you Mm. would receive a call from one of our frontline employees to talk to you about what your grievance is. So it was about one of the things that the company was trying to do was really build employee pride and advocacy and give them some tools to really try and uh, support themselves, their friends and family, but also empower them. And that was it's still yeah. going strong. It's been in the mix probably for eight years and it's, yeah, it's it's a great little legacy there. Yeah, amazing. And then there was also, sorry, I'm just thinking about one of the more different projects that I've worked on, which was selling a multi-billion dollar power plant, <laughs> which was really different too. So coming up with, and I was just part of this project team as a change manager, but coming up with a way to package up one of our assets that we needed to sell in order to okay. pay down some debt. So that was really cool. So how much would you say your identity is made up of your professional self these days? I think it naturally has morphed into something a little bit different. So rather than starting my conversation about what I do with I used to be this or I am this, I don't really talk about what I do too much and maybe that's because I'm just quietly content with it. But I do find that I use a project manager or a change manager mindset. Okay. So my parents, my dad in particular, will just roll his eyes when I ask him about return on investment or who are the stakeholders, dad, or I'll use some of that project terminology and be like, (laughs) just stop talking shop. But I actually naturally think that way. Yeah. So I guess it is wrapped up in my identity in that it traverses uh, into other aspects of my life. And yeah, I think there's just that quiet confidence that I have these days because I feel like I've found my place for now. So how are you still learning in life, do you feel? Always. The good thing about working in projects is there's always so many of them and you come across lots of different experts. And so I'm forever, probably, I've I've always had that observer bent to me. So I'm always looking at who is fascinating to me, what looks interesting, could I do that? And yeah, I like just learning from watching other people and working with other people. So these days, I have this morbid fascination about just doing things that make me scared. So I like to stretch myself. I like to put my hat in the ring for projects that seem a little far-fetched for me because I think I've learned some strategies around how to manage that. And I think if I can just impart any (laughs) advice here, I would say that it's good to always be learning and to be pushing yourself. And it's actually not as scary as you think when you step up to the plate and try something that you feel is beyond your capabilities. I think that's the only way to really keep continuing to stretch further and further. And I I find it's a bit of a sport for me now. I really enjoy it. So what are some of the greatest lessons you've ever learned? They do not have to be purely work. It can be in any capacity. Cool. I think patience Mm. isn't called a virtue for nothing. It certainly um, (laughs) is something that takes time. So I would say what I've learned most is even though it's been over 15 years since I left teaching, I've had to work solidly at trying to find my way and I've had to be really patient during times where I've it's felt like I've, I've been left behind and I've been looking around me and it feels like everyone else has found their groove and I'm just stuck in a rut. Looking back, it makes complete sense that I was in the right place at the right time and yeah. I just had to do that time. So another, I guess that's twofold, that one, patience isn't called a virtue for nothing, but also please don't compare yourself with others because everyone's got their own little route to follow and there's just no formula for it and there's so much outside of our control that 
it's impossible to move. Sometimes all you need is a little bit of a season where you are just sitting and inert for a little bit and that's okay. The other thing is sometimes success isn't all about working hard Mm. and sometimes it isn't based on merit and that's been a really tough one for me to learn because I always thought that if I work hard enough, someone will notice me. And one of the things I've learned the hard way is that you really need to represent yourself and that if you don't stand up for yourself and you know advocate for yourself or make decisions for yourself, yeah. no one else is coming, I'm afraid to say. I've learned that lesson my myself. Yep. I had the same thought process. In fact, I actually had to see a yeah. therapist at one point in my life that had to say to me, that's actually quite toxic for you because it was that idea of, If you work hard and you're a good person, good things will come. And unfortunately, yes, that can happen in some instances, but in other instances you have to step up yourself and, as you say, advocate for yourself and it's okay to be loud and to take up some space. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the worst that can happen Mm. in the end? And, there's, you know, there's always a gentle and polite way to say things too. I think, you know, it's really seductive to consider some of the outbursts that you could have and you know the drama but actually it doesn't have to be dramatic to stand up for yourself Mm. it can be really gentle and persistent and confident but sometimes it takes time to really feel comfortable doing that and to find the right mix that feels right for you and I think you're right the idea of being okay to be authentic in that too you don't actually have to do it yeah. like other people do. You can do it in a way that is really authentic. And just because you haven't seen it done before doesn't mean it won't work for you. Yes. And often we don't know what our strengths are mm. too. That's another piece. I think I was looking outside too much at everybody else for a long time yeah. thinking they're really great at this. And I didn't realize what my own strengths were because they didn't actually feel like a strength because they just felt normal. Mm-hmm. So don't discount that. And usually what a strength is, is what you actually really enjoy too. Yeah, I agree. Well, whenever I was thinking about what comes next, I would just think about, well, what do I like? What interests me? And that's where I would find my direction. Mm-hmm. Also, you're not stuck. So if if you make a decision and it doesn't turn out the way that you'd planned or the way that you'd liked... I know we touched upon this before, but I think it's worth reiterating. You don't have to stay there. That's a decision. Yeah. So you always have a choice. You have a choice to move if you'd like. And yes, it may not be easy, but please know that you're always changing and evolving over time. So you can continue to keep moving forward. You're not, you don't only get a certain amount of decisions to make when it comes to your career in your life. You can have countless careers and there are different seasons in life too so you might have some really slow seasons like winter where you just kind of hibernate for a while and it's it's cool to stay in a role because it actually will look good on the resume if you complete 12 months of it and you know it's comfortable and it's paying the bills there might also be some really really busy seasons where I've done this before I basically handed over my life for a couple of years to work on a really important transformation project and it was I think worth it in the end but it was a conscious decision and then I had a bit of a quieter period after that so I think life for me has been very much ebbs and flows too and that's okay yeah I agree you are now a mother of two young children similar ages to mine and you've now returned to work after your second can you tell me what the juggling act is like for you now at home and with career yes it's very interesting and it's definitely a juggling act there is no such thing as balance and as soon as I realized that I kind of was able to exhale I think because when I went back to work after my first baby I was trying to create some sort of equilibrium I think between work and life and all the expectations But then I came to realize that that would never happen and that this season is just going to be crazy for a while. (laughs) Yeah. And that I just need to look at the things that matter from day to day in a way. So I think being able to drop the fact that there's never going to be a balance has has been monumental for me. I really rely on childcare and I'm very much missing it at the moment as we're in stage four lockdown. Yeah. 
but there again, I'm the person who drops my kid off uh, as soon as the gates open and then picks them up before the gates close. So, you know, there's a certain amount of guilt that comes with that for me, Mm. but it's that something that I'm becoming more and more comfortable with because I work four days a week and I have one day with my kids and that is so sacred to me and I just savour the moments that I have with my children and make them make sure that I'm as present as possible during that time. And on a practical note, I think I've just had to let some things go, Mm. you know, things like exercise and keeping a beautiful home, all those things that I used to kill myself to try and get around to. I just don't anymore. I value time with children, but also just time resting and time with my partner and the fact that the house isn't as clean as it could be really doesn't make any difference to my yeah. life anymore. And how is it working with your partner? Are you both full-time? you both part-time? How is that kind of juggling? Is he able to spend some time with the kids as well? So he works full-time, but at the moment he's on parental leave. So his ah. organisation has, yeah, a really great benefit which offers primary carers parental leave a little bit like mine so we've been really fortunate that when I've gone back to work both times he's been able to take this parental leave and there's a lovely transition through that and I work four days a week so I'm 0.8 so I have the kids on a Friday and look at the moment it's fine because we're still in this new world of COVID and we're still kind of finding our feet it's constantly a juggle and I think communication is really key between us we almost over communicate but it's probably <laughs> better that way yeah because I just I can't always anticipate what he's thinking and vice versa yeah we kind of sit together at the start of the week and talk about what lies ahead in terms of when I need to have absolute focus on my work and what he can do to try and corral the kids away. But even so, they're always busting in to my room and wanting to have a chat with all the people on the video conference. Thankfully, my organisation is really great with that and really accommodating. And in this kind of time, I don't think organisations can afford not to be because they really don't have a choice, but they're genuinely very supportive. What that does mean is the work doesn't go away and I'm just doing it outside of hours. Yeah. So, but look, I usually do work on the weekends anyway and after hours, so it's probably no different. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I asked because, you know, I'm thinking about going back myself and, you know, I think that so much of my work, if I go back into the classroom, will be done after 7.30. I think that's just the reality of it really with little kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's a tricky one, but ultimately, I don't know how else to say. Yeah, it probably will. Like, <laughs> yeah, you can say that. That's fine. You can say that. But because- then, what's it like in teaching? What's it like? See, I guess for me too. So this is this is why I've stayed away for so long. So it'll be four years in November that I left the classroom because I work yep. all the time and for my own satisfaction because I loved it and because I wanted to create better lessons and I wanted to create different resources and give feedback quickly and promptly. So that was for me. I did that, but I don't know how to teach without doing that. So as I said, it's the reason I've stayed away for as long as I have. Yeah. But I think that I really miss all of that because I loved it too. But you might find... And maybe I can say this, you might find that you work differently. Yeah. I know I did. I think the little cost that I did have though in working differently, and by that I mean I was probably more tunnel visioned. Yeah. So I would focus only on the work because I didn't have time for the socialization side of things because I was working four days. And I did feel that though because there wasn't the – colloquial interactions that I was used to having prior to going out on parental leave. It just came out of pure necessity. So you may find that you adjust a little bit Mm. in your work practices and work style, even if it's just for the time being in order to get through. Yeah which is fine as well. I Yeah, I find that there was a stark difference mm. to the way that I used to work. I was probably more consultative. I probably deliberated more, thought more, and yeah. now I don't give myself as much time yeah. to do all of the thinking. I'm just more kind of action-focused, not saying that there's any parallel with the way that you would work. But, yeah, I think 
that just comes is born out of necessity. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with me today and giving me so much advice and also for giving me so much insight into the fact that life does not have to be so planned out and then we actually can find joy and excitement in roles that perhaps we never would have considered. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for the opportunity to come and have a chat with you, Laura.